0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how are you? I'm not too bad, Gary. How are you? Saddened by the state of the world, Michael. As you should be if you were a more emphatic man, as I am. Michael is hungover and I told him I would be gentle on him, so of course we're (laughs) going to start as aggressively as possible.
1: Was it really necessary... To tell the people that Michael was hungover. I am empathetic, but maybe just not informed.
0: It's going to serve as a kind of a a, a piece of bedding for how awfully I'm going to treat you for the next 30 30 or so minutes. I may actually randomly play a noise of a foghorn.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You will not see the light of heaven. I was spiked, Gary. I was spiked. I won't name the name of the pub. I don't name in shame, but then... They should, they should they should, be more careful about what they're giving their people. Terrible.
0: So you've gone with the teenage girl drinking for the first time excuse?
1: Well, maybe, yeah. I, or maybe somebody struck me with a syringe. I don't know. It, 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 it certainly it wasn't me. Uh,
0: so one major thing that is happening today, but which we will not be talking about, we're recording this on on Saturday, is the Hamas offensive in Israel. It seems to be substantially larger than previous offensives. They seem to have penetrated quite far into Israel. There seems to be a significant amount of militants and the Israelis seem to be very much on the back foot. But at the time we are recording this, it's still immensely unclear what is actually happening. Other than, Michael, the very, I would say, likely outcome that uh, Israel takes this very poorly.
1: I think the likely outcome of this is that there are going to be lots of people who are going to die. And a lot of people have already, de- or have already died and have. And we have seen reaction of our friends on the left here talking about the uh, legitimacy of the cause and all that and it doesn't seem to be the case. Israel will have the right to defend itself but it will and it's all going to be another very very horrible very bloody mess which is not going to make the problem the solution, whatever solution might be to that benighted place any closer.
0: So we will as I said not be not be going into that uh, too far. What we will start with Michael is is the discussion that's been going on. Uh, obviously, the budget is coming up next week, so we will touch on that. But to start with, as this is technically a financial affair, we had a questions that we put to Roderick O'Gorman and Pascal Donoghue this week as to the nature of the state's funding of NGOs. Roderick gave an answer which seemed to indicate that NGOs were only being funded uh, if they either provided a service, which you know, is fair enough in isolation, assuming that there is oversight and that the service is actually maintained. And certain NGOs do provide a service at a substantially lower cost and at a higher quality than the state could. And then other ones were being given money because he said that they were in line with the government's objectives, which yeah. kind of takes the N out of the idea of an NGO. But it was kind of, it was phrased in such a way where it wasn't quite clear. Or you could at least make the argument that he was saying, well, there are policies that must be followed by the government in order to give money to NGOs, not that we're only giving NGO- NGOs funding that agree with us. And so we decided we would ask Pascal donahue or we sent uh, Ben to ask Pascal donahue And Pascal donahue clarified matters, I would say, substantially by outright saying that the government only funds NGOs, outside of service NGOs, that are aligned with the government's objectives. Again...
1: Kind of contrary to the idea of an NGO. Before we get into the what seemed to be the the, the logical consequences of that position, isn't do we not ha- did we not ask a similar? We was a similar question asked some time ago about this, and the answer was something to do with creating debate and discourse and diversity of opinion or something. We did. I'm I'm not dreaming that, am I?
0: No, and I think Michael, if you search your memory you may find that it was actually Pascal who said that. Yes. So Pascal has evolved from we're funding NGOs in order to ensure there is lively democratic civic debate to we are funding NGOs because those NGOs align themselves with the objectives of this government. God, they evolve quickly these days, don't they, politicians? I mean, Michael, we are simple men of limited means. Very. And perhaps we are wrong on this. But I would have to say I struggle to see how, outside of, again, outside of service NGOs, how the government can fund only NGOs that align themselves with the program for government and therefore establish a vigorous, civic, democratic debate about the merits of certain things, given that they're only funding those who agree with them. Now, I'm sure... The government, filled with people far more educated than myself, could explain this to me in a way that a child or small dog might understand. But I struggle to wrap my head around that in an immediate sense. It would seem, Michael, if I was being cynical, like that's kind of the opposite of wanting a vigorous civic debate because you're massively lopsiding the resources available to one side, the side who happen to agree with you.
1: Yeah, on the face of it, that's what, everybody, well, everybody, a lot of people I saw commenting on this that, who weren't happy about it said, well, obviously what they're doing is they're, they're basically, they've created like another arm of government, which is apparently outside of government, apparently, in some sense, independent and expert in the areas, And these people have to follow government policy. So then it's in a, in a sense, it's a, Uh, creating a lobby, uh, an external funded lobby for for government policy. And maybe uh, that is true, but at the very least, isn't there a kind of a a circuit going on here? It's not so much, or at least not exclusively, that the NGOs represent government policy. But I think there is also an element that the government represents NGO policy just as much.
0: We did have Charlie Flanagan coming out, I think, last week or the week before, uh, giving an interview in which he said that, he felt he would have had more influence had he been a member of an NGO, a mid-level NGO, rather than a backbencher TD.
1: It just, it seems to me that at this stage, it, at at the very best, what you'd have to say is, it is increasingly difficult to try and understand the genesis of policy as it's produced and enacted as being policy, which is, has its origins in the political parties and are in the government, or if it, these policies actually have their origin and their genesis within the NGOs, who then osmotically transferred them into the government. That the, the lines of demarcation kind of seem to be at the very least blurred.
0: What is what is happening? Actually, there, I think there are two figures who explain what is happening here. One is um, Peter Mayer, who we've talked about frequently, yeah. and one is uh, Joseph Scumpeter. Now, Joseph Schumpeter was a, a political economist. He was the finance minister of Austria for actually a very brief time, um, and then later became a, a professor. He wrote a, a number of books, but one was particularly interested with the death of capitalism. Yes. Very, and he he was also very interested in communism and did quite a deal of scholarly analysis of the flaws of communism. It's well worth reading um but one of what he said would kill capitalism was an emerging elite who would feel that they were undervalued by yes. capitalist systems and would conglomerate basically into uh, he doesn't use the phrase ngo i think but he explains what an ngo basically would be now I mean, the man died in the ninety, like 1950, I think. So this was substantially ahead of his time. And he basically said that these people will pull capitalism down because they will have enough prestige that they will integrate themselves into government. And then because they hate the system, because the system does not produce outcomes which would give them what they feel they're owed, mm-hmm. they will pull the system apart in an attempt to, with all good intention, basically pull themselves up. Yeah. And Peter Mayer makes a, a similar point where he argues that as the parties lose their grassroots, they will move from using their membership as a basis for the democratic legitimacy, to their integration and involvement with stakeholders who claim to be representative of broad swathes of the population as proof of their legitimacy. And that seems largely to have been what has actually happened.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I remember when a Many, many years ago reading, I don't know, was it actually reading Schumpeter, I was reading a commentary on Schumpeter, but the, he, he, thinking, oh, Schumpeter was one of the bad guys, because Schumpeter believed that in the competition between capitalism and socialism, that it was part, that in the end, the socialism could win, and in fact, that socialism would win, and and he described the mechanisms, and then I went back years later, and I read him again, and I thought, you know what, it's not that he was one of the bad guys, it's he was just right because he believed that at it would be the very success of capitalism that would be its downfall by creating larger and larger surpluses material surpluses that we would create larger and larger groups of people which unprecedented numbers of people who would go on not just into secondary schooling but third level education and create this large shall we say, underemployed and un- what they would perceive as these undervalued intellectuals. And they would look at the world and say, well, and I think actually the kind of the postmodernists are a bit like this as well, or the intellectual of the 20th century, and this obsession with language is a reflection of this, because these are people who work with words, essentially. That's their job. Words and ideas, I think that's Thomas Sowell's definition, isn't it, of an intellectual? Somebody whose principal product is... A, uh, principal I- product their ideas and their 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 means of production through through language but so they regard themselves as being obviously very important and very valuable but capitalism rewards gr- far greater other people people who work in finance people who work in technology people who are entrepreneurs i mean it's Sch- schumpeter is the great uh, originator of uh, on of the the theory of the entrepreneur creative destruction all that not Schumpeter, but so going back to our friend Nietzsche, of course, this produces resentment because the system must be flawed if it's producing these outcomes where they're not getting rewarded materially or prestige. This to the same degree that all these other people are, and they go uh, and in I would say in, in in through resentment to break basically break the system. I think that's the kind of thing that we're seeing happening. These specialised groups are doing that. And what Mayor talks about absolutely is, mirrors that as well. It's a, a, a slightly, the language is different. I mean, the, the, the mechanism is described differently, but it's the same process. And that's what these people are. But they don't really, they see, to the extent that they see that there's any value to the operation of the market, they, st- they, f- they see it as fundamentally flawed and they see that the, everything they see is seen through the optic of market failure. This is the favourite the favorite thing. We everything, Everywhere we look around, we see examples of market failure. And it is their job and the function of the state ultimately to remedy those market failures.
0: Mm, could make a joke about them being the market failures that the market should uh, rectify, but we'll take the high road here.
1: Yeah, yeah. well done for taking the high road. Thank there.
0: you. Thank you um, yes that uh, the uh, the book by the way in, which talks about this is, is capitalism socialism and democracy came out in the 1940s well worth reading
1: sure. sorry I'm on, sorry on, 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 on an unrelated that Shopper also does this really interesting analysis which is kind not exactly value free but almost kind of value free of the difference between having a gold based currency gold standard currency and not gold standard and talking about the kind of policy consequences that you have and the kind of mo- sort of civic virtues you have if you have uh, a fiat currency as opposed to a uh, a gold standard and that, that one will inevitably involve certain certain kinds of consequences which i think people wouldn't think of like for example he would he he would argue that having a gold standard involves having quite a conservative non-interventionist foreign policy and he he gives reasons for that, but it's very interesting. It's not at the end of it that he comes down and says, "Okay, therefore we should have a fiat currency, or therefore we should have a gold standard." But rather, he said, "These these are the kinds of civic virtues you'll have with this, and with this, and these are the these are the policy consequences that that you will have from having this kind of system or that." And I think, in the light of the world that we live in, it's, it, it the analysis is interesting and, and worthwhile.
0: And that's why NGOs are bad.
1: <laughs> that's why NGOs are bad I thought we you know, we've, we've gone a bit off
0: field we need to summarise that yeah. in as simple a simpler form as, 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 as necessary uh, no I, I think actually one thing I would say about Grip's coverage of this, I would like to narrow it down now that we've got the general trends of it to focus mostly on the advocacy NGOs I think there's a lot of stuff that can be done with service NGOs but service NGOs can provide an actual legitimate public good And the questions there, I think, are different than the questions for advocacy NGOs. Advocacy NGOs, I think, in general, you could just take entirely off the table. Service NGOs, I think, requires an actual individual analysis of those. The problem we've had when we've been trying to do work in this area is that there is a very deliberate conflation of these two things, in the same way that migration groups tend to conflate asylum seeker and refugee into the one term because it protects certain things and it makes things look better. And I think we've done some work to break that apart. But I think we will um, we will be focusing on the advocacy groups, I think, in the coming period. It was also interesting what Roderick O'Gorman could not answer, Michael. I mean, we asked him about the advice from Belong To, saying that... Um, Uh, teachers should lie to to parents. He couldn't answer that. Now, we have subsequently sent Roderick O'Gorman the entire report, I believe, several times. And at the next available opportunity, we will ask him, now that we've sent you the report several times, do you think it's acceptable for a state-funded organization to train teachers to lie to parents in whatever circumstance? And we'll see what he says to that. But he also couldn't give an answer to the case we've seen uh, develop involving Colette uh, Colfer who is I believe uh, I can't actually recall what university she's with it's the Southeastern Technical University uh, it is it?
1: Setu which I think sounds like something from a some kind sci-fi some kind of sci-fi dystopia Setu the Empire yes it's basically it's the old Carlo and Waterford IT's have been joined up together with the campus in Wexford and they're now the Southeastern. It's a university again, for some reason. Well, we know why it's a university. If it's a university, it can access certain kinds of fundings from, from funding from Europe that uh, they can't get simply as ITs. Yeah.
0: So uh, effectively what happened with Colette uh, Colfer is mm-hmm. that she was asked to sign a, or comply with a policy that the university had brought in which described a refusal to use the preferred pronouns of staff or students as unlawful discrimination or harassment. Now, this is a claim that's begun circulating over the last while, that if someone says they want to be referred to as a man or a woman or whatever, if you don't do that, that you've actually committed a crime. I have never seen an actual compelling legal analysis that shows that to be the case. And it appears to me that some of the advocacy groups have linked in with universities, employer groups, things of that nature and have gotten them to use this language which I don't think is actually legally accurate and so Michael we asked Roderick O'Gorman given that he is the Minister for Equality and this relates to or they're saying that this is because relevant equality legislation. Interestingly when this was put to him by Ben he refused to comment on the specific case. When asked would he comment on a theoretical case he he said he would not comment on it. And would ask, <laughs> would he comment on his reading of the law? He yeah. said he would not comment on it. No, no, no. So we can't ask the minister a theoretical question about this. We can't ask him a uh, individual question about this. And we can't ask him about the law. So I'm. it would seem that the minister has decided he does not want to speak about this at all. Now, the department, uh, I, I reached out to the department as a follow-on, asking, you know, what is the department's take on this? Is this a crime? Because all Roderick had said was that um, basically people should be nice and I'm not going to talk about it. And what the department said was they, they sent back a first email which basically just listed the law and I said that's not what I asked, can you give me something more relevant? And they came back and just said it's going to be a matter for the courts and the Workplace Relations Commission. Now I'm going to, I haven't had a chance yet, but I'm going to go back through the debate that happened when these laws were put in place. And C, is there any mention of pronouns? And I don't expect to find any, Michael.
1: But Gary, is this not what we have talked about before? Now, you could say in all charity and deciding, okay, we're going to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, that Roderick or Gorman just doesn't know how to answer the questions. That it's, Yeah, okay, he may be the minister who is responsible and it may be his department, but Roderick just doesn't know. He's not that informed. He's not that bright. Or you could say that this is strategic ambiguity. That in this area, th- these kinds of areas, it's actually much more effective for them to leave people in a state of perpetual doubt about what is, in fact, the situation. That if people believe that this would be an act of criminal discrimination, for example, or an act, potentially, if we get there, of some kind of hate crime well then they will interior they will mean they will they will pay attention to their interior dialogue they will still think what they think but they will not articulate it and they will not state it and they will not act or speak on the basis of what they actually believe they will moderate their public behavior and that's what they want to happen because they're not really sure what we're saying is it's say listen Minister, is this a crime? Ah, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Take take a chance, do what you want to do, and then maybe we'll arrest you and take you to court and fine you or put you in prison for three months or whatever the the penalty might happen to be. But we're going to leave that decision up to you because maybe it's not a crime. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's fine. Maybe it's just a an act of discourtesy. Maybe it is a tolerable hostility. Well, we're not going to tell you. We're going to leave it up to you to make that distinction. Because the one thing they don't want to do is to actually have to make a clear position. Because if they made the position clear that they would like, where I think a lot of people would like this to be, in fact, a sanctionable act of discrimination, the political pushback on that could potentially be impossible to deal with. Now, Michael, I think, you know, we don't like to talk about politicians' personal
0: lives here. No. There is something I think we need to bring up about Roderick O'Gorman to put his answer into a bit of context, given his refusal to talk about the law at all. And was this. Roderick's educational background. Now, he has a degree in law. He received a Master of Laws from the London School of Economics. He has a PhD. He was a lecturer in Griffith, and he was also a law lecturer in DCU. I would suspect, therefore, that the minister has a fairly good idea of the actual legal bounds of the primary piece of equality legislation in the state for which he is the minister for equality. Just gonna go out on a limb there. He probably knows what the answer is. And the fact he doesn't want to give it interests me. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it interests you. I would say that if somebody who has been, uh, who a graduate and has in fact uh, holds advanced degrees in law and has been a teacher at third level of law, uh, if we are going to go forward with the theory that he doesn't actually know what the law is, well, then it's it's it, it's pretty bad news for the rest of us, Gary. Put it that way. If Roddy doesn't know what the law is, what chance do the what do do thee and me have for knowing what the law is?
0: I I suppose I have seen some people say that the argument that the state brings in the law and then it's the court's place to determine its application. No. No, I I don't really buy that. And even if you did, the state still brings in laws with intent and it can disclose its intent. And the question, was it your intent that this could be classed as illegal? Is an interesting one. Now, the Irish Times is reporting that Leo, when asked, said, quite amusingly, given he is the Taoiseach, I don't ever see a situation in which we would prosecute someone for that, which is like an answer, but lacks but, many of the important pieces of actually being an answer.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's like an answer in much the same way as a, a duck is like a swan. The relitigating old ground, we have said many times, at least I've said many times, one of the absolute basics principles of justice and legal justice is that a law, when you pass a law, that it should create clear definitions and it it must be possible for a reasonable person, a, re, a, a reasonable citizen to be able to understand if and when they're breaking the law. That's just a sine qua non of justice and law In a democratic society, one of the tools that was used, you've talked about this before, Gary, in totalitarian regimes, it's when the law is, the law and the ambiguities and and the shadows of the law are used by the state as a tool of oppression because you don't know, because the law in the hands of the authoritarian state becomes a a, a weapon against the citizen. That shouldn't be happening in, in a liberal democracy you should be able to be a reasonable person should be able to pick up a piece of legislation which isn't maybe a highly technical piece of legislation regarding banking or insurance or something but something like this it should be possible for a citizen to know exactly when they are breaking the law and when they are not because otherwise, you're creating you're creating an absolute system of injustice. Because a well-meaning, well-intentioned citizen could potentially be breaking the law with unconsciously and unwittingly, and with with a, 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 even a, 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 with a, a, a slightly greater degree of clarity, they would be able to avoid it. You can't do that. The law shouldn't be about setting traps for people. It shouldn't be a minefield where you have to tiptoe around, never quite sure of your footing. That's a bizarre notion.
0: So are you saying, Michael, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that it could be considered offensive to the concept of law if, let's say, a a government funded an NGO which ended up using other NGOs and uh, various associations to popularise the idea that a law contained things which it did not actually contain in order to influence behaviour, and the government, when this was put to them, decided, presumably because they support that idea in some extent, that people should not receive clarification of that unless they were willing to take a very expensive court case, even though it was clearly not the intent of the legislation.
1: It's offensive to the law, Gary. it's and it's offensive to justice. Listen, we're not the only ones that have been saying this, but this is a part of this... The, the discourse we've we've had before, but the fact that the process is being used here. They don't actually want to take people to court. They don't want to have to, to go to the high court because there's a very decent chance. For example, they may get a, a WRC ruling, which will be in their favour, because WRC might well rule that this is a form of workplace discrimination or harassment or the creation of a non-friendly or a hostile environment, something like that, that might well happen. But then that could end up going to the high court. And you might find some high court judge, you know the way sometimes high court judges do, losing the rag and saying, what kind of nonsense is this? There's, this doesn't appear in any of the legislation. And if it did, it would be, on this case and this case, it would probably be uh, repugnant to the constitution. So go away with your nonsense. That kind of reaction theoretically possible is exactly the kind of thing they don't want and they don't want to have to they don't want people talking about it and demanding clarity demanding precision because that kind of precision is going to lead them either to have to say okay we're not going to go where we would like to go because we just can't get that through or we're going to or or we're we're going to go to have to we're going to put it in and then they're going to absolutely come for us with pitchforks and firebrands at the next election because they're going to hate us for doing it so much. No, they're going to, use the, they're going to live in the ambiguity. They're going to use this strategic ambiguity to try and stop, to try and... Do you remember, a friend of ours is very fond of a story, I think it's from Tolstoy, of a, a duchess or a princess in St. Petersburg in the 19th century, who was in the habit of announcing that she was divorced and she just kept relentlessly repeating this fact at soirees and in salons. And eventually people just accepted the fact that, oh well, the Duchess is, of course, divorced. Even though everybody knew that there was, in fact, no divorce in Russia at the time. There was no legal recourse for, for, uh, for people to get divorced. But by dint of that, that her social presence and her repetition, people just gradually accepted that this was the case. And I think these are basically, these are Tolstoy's princesses going on. Well, you know, it is, in fact, the law, you know. And on the basis, that will moderate people's behavior in the way that they want them to do it.
0: It is interesting, some of the groups which have come online and seem to be telling people that these things are true in association with these NGOs. Groups you wouldn't... uh wouldn't think would get involved i think we'll do a bit more work on that though we'll come back to that one that'll be fun that will be fun i mean michael if we wanted to continue this high talk of actual you know ideas yes. we could say that it appears in some ways that what's happening is the development of a friend enemy distinction ah yes bring in schmidt the uh, juror of nazi germany
1: much beloved of the Chinese, as Gary likes to tell us all the time. <laughs>
0: I, I, well, the Chinese do love a good ability to define an exception. Yeah. <laughs> That's a joke designed for a very small audience. I suppose really more of a comment at that point. Yeah. Anyway, to move on, the budget. There have been a great deal of promises uh, from targeted mortgage relief, the idea that workers are going to be a €1,000 off better, Uh, after this budget than before something which would be incredibly expensive and it'd be very interesting to see how they do that there's there are currently little bits of analysis out saying well this is how they might do it or this is what's likely to happen but quite a lot of stuff actually seems to have not been pinned down as much as it usually would by this point because the budget is coming out next week so usually at this point it's a it's done and it's clear and it's mostly leaked. Yes. Because we're long past the days when, you know, leaking a budget was a sacking offence. Good old days. But there was, rather than talk about the the budget uh, particularly, Michael, there was a different piece of news, a poll, which I wanted to talk about basically in in the context of the budget. And this is a behaviour and attitudes poll that came out uh, on Saturday morning. And the headline that the Irish Times have gone with on this, Michael, is... Almost half of Irish adults could not cover the cost of an unexpected expense of a thousand euro. Survey finds.
1: Yes, half. That seems like a lot.
0: Yeah, it says that uh, according to the research, twenty-five percent of Irish people are struggling to make ends meet, with fifty-eight percent saying they're getting by uh, when it comes to their personal finances. Uh, with the sixteen to fifty-four age cohort struggling the most. Uh, they also say the gap between the middle classes and blue-collar workers has lessened, and most of the of the uh, middle-class uh, people who were surveyed say they have been negatively impacted by the cost-of-living crisis. Also interesting, most do not think the global economy is going to be any better over the next 12 months, and quite a lot um, think that the cost-of-living is, is not going to... Um, the cost of living crisis is is going to ease during uh, 2024. 34% say, well, 40% say it will, but 26% say they're not sure either way. I have made the comment before, Michael, that I think in politics, a lot of what people talk about where they say that certain things are important, that housing is important or healthcare is important. Ultimately, the most important thing, I think, is not political ideologies is not the things people say they give a shit about, like the environment. It is how they are doing. And are they better off than they were before? And on that basis, over half of your population unable... Now, it's only 51%. And another 10% don't know. So I'm going to say that's about 61%. Because if you don't know if you can afford a 1,000 euro, you probably can't afford a 1,000 euro I of an unexpected re- outlay. That's reasonable. Because yeah. you... You either aren't sure or you have no handle on your budget at all. Yeah. So if 61% could not pay an unexpected but necessary expense of €1,000 and I was the government, I would be deeply worried, particularly considering that we have elections next year. Yeah. Now, not the national elections, at least not uh, announced. It wouldn't be entirely surprising if there were also national elections.
1: I, I, I have been of the opinion, as you know, for quite some time that when it comes to the nationals, the, nationals, the generals, they will hang in as long as they possibly can, barring some dreadful event. Uh, but yeah, the the the, the locals and the, and the Europeans are coming up and I. it's going to, it's, I can't see how it's not going to be anything but bad news for them. Sinn Féin will do well and Sinn Fein don't have to be doing well for Sinn Fein t- to do well, if you know what I mean, because Sinn Féin did so badly in the last election and Finifal did so relatively well and Finnegel did decent. Not great, but you know, could have been worse. That they're coming off a base point where the chances are both that Finnegale and Finefal will do badly and Sinn Fein will do well. Now, we won't go into that, but whether or not that will actually be reflective of a a really a good result. Or just his historical correction, but the, the, the headlines will be Sinn Féin win seats and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael lose seats. Whatever happens, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it's was it Bill Clinton? Is the economy stupid? It's always good. There are two two questions that we know are the the most important questions for people in the Western world. How are you doing? And how do you think you're going to do in the net, in the near future? Are you doing okay now? Are we going in the right direction?
0: Also, depending on how much resentment is in a society, how do you think your neighbor is doing? Yeah. becomes increasingly support. Low-trust societies, that's a very important question because people will pull themselves down just to pull you down further in those types of societies.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah which is horrible, um, but true.
0: One thing that I think is quite interesting is when you actually look at the breakdown um, from the the ABC1 Um On that, actually, I'm just going to explain this because I never, when I'm listening to people, I never really hear them explain what this actually is. So listeners may have heard people saying, oh, you know, the ABC1s or the C2DEs or the Fs uh, are feeling a particular way. That is what is called an NRS social grading. Now, they're a type of classification uh, used in Ireland and the UK particularly. uh, A is upper middle class. B is, is middle class. C1 is lower middle class. Uh, C2 is skilled working class, and D is working class, E are the unemployed, and F are farmers. That's actually what it means. So an ABC1 uh, demographic is basically, you know, middle class up. How are the middle class doing? And a C2DE is, um, you know, how are the working classes doing? Basically, F kind of gets in, thrown in wherever and Like in this poll, it was thrown into the ABC ones, which I think is a bit of a mistake because farmers have very distinct uh, socioeconomic positions on a lot of stuff that I think is is better actually analyzed independently. But I and Michael were having a bit of talk of this off air, and we were asking, I was asking, how much of this is that costs have increased and wages have remained relatively stagnant and people are just being put under more pressure and how much of this is an element of that but an element of people just making very bad financial decisions because they don't know what they should be doing or they know what they should be doing but they lack the uh, emotional and behavioral regulation required to do it because it requires uh, deferring gratitude. And what I think is interesting here is the ABC1F uh, grouping 32% 32% of them said they couldn't afford an unexpected but necessary expense of a €1,000. Mm-hmm. These are not people with low levels of income. Now, it was higher in the C2DE, but it was only 47%, which is still a massive percent. But, you know, not as much higher as you would expect. So I, I suspect there is a strong behavioral component to this. Now, I will say this against my point. As your income goes up, your expenses tend to inflate alongside it, and most people don't even really notice it. But you get better houses, you get better cars, you eat out more. You pick up all of these things which you are convinced are entirely essential because the people you're working with have access to them, and they can oftentimes legitimately be immensely helpful or useful, but they're not actually essential. So people in even the A group can have very high cost levels. And a lot of them, I know at the minute, are being slammed by the increases in mortgage rates. Like those percentage points increase could have have led to people paying, you know, double the mortgage that they had before, depending what rate they were coming off. So I can see an element of that. But for 32% of that group to be unable to put up a 1,000 is not good. Like not good at all.
1: Well, yeah, for that group, it, it just seems weird. I mean, I I, I do think that, we we've, we've heard uh, our, our friend and colleague uh, Sarah Ryan talk about this that it, amongst her friend group people who are on very decent incomes indeed but were probably living fairly near the capacity of their income but they had, but maybe and part of that was they had upgraded their houses and they' acquired uh, greater debt, larger mortgages and when the mortgage increases came, they have been very, very substantial and basically have gobbled up all of the breathing space, all of the elasticity in their income. That's, it's gone. And they are kind of to the pin of their collar now. And I, th- I think that just culturally, we were talking before, I think that we went through such an extended period of low interest rates and basically no inflation, where in fact inflation wasn't the concern. Deflation had become the the bogeyman of the central bankers across the Western world, the developed world, that people had kind of absorbed the notion that the idea that your interest rates could go up or in, go up substantially at all just didn't come into the equation. And I think particularly younger people, I, I think I wouldn't blame them. I think it that's just that that was the water that they were swimming in. That was the the... the, the these are the newspapers they were reading, this was the commentary they were hearing, this was the, the advice they were getting from the people selling them their mortgages, that we had now entered this phase, long-term low interest rates. And they also possibly, and again, i personally very sympathetic to this, because I'm not good at these things, didn't quite understand that a half percent increase or a percent increase in interest rates didn't represent what it sounds like in in the in, in your payments that it wasn't just a small percentage increments but it would translate into a very large increase in your payments but having said that in there shall we say in their defense it just seems to me strange when you're talking about people uh, you're talking about a ones Gary I mean in Ireland people who are up at the top end right A's. Most of those, they're, they're going to be at a hundred grand, more than a hundred grand a year, aren't they? Like the fact that they wouldn't, be, that the, a thousand quid would stymie them does seem to be... Well, I
0: think an important point here, Michael, as well, is these, this is not individually. This is your household. Your, yeah. So in most cases, this is going to be two people. Two incomes, I mean, yes. May, maybe only one is working, but... Uh, There could be two incomes. So it's really two people who, between them, could not put forward a thousand. And if you can't put forward a thousand euro, you are doing very, very badly financially. I mean, ideally, you should have a fund of about three months of your whatever your expenses are on hand that is kind of seen as best practice three to six months some people say it should be three to six months of, of income I think that's unnecessary three to six or three months usually of expenses so the average mortgage in Ireland is 1100 euro um, or was earlier in the year it may have gone up by now um, and that varies depending on first time buyer or second time buyer but if your mortgage is 1100 euro. And let's say your living expenses are seven hundred. That's going to depend on what you're buying and family thing. That's eighteen hundred. You should have about fifty four hundred in cash in a savings account, in case something comes up that you need to deal with it. So, i I would be concerned. Yeah, uh, at that figure.
1: This This is the kind of thing that historically was the difference between being middle class and being poor. That you could be, or not even poor, but sort of on, in, in the, in the, the, say, the bottom quintile of income earners. It wasn't that week in, week out, you weren't, you weren't doing okay. You, you could, you're probably doing reasonably okay. The problem you had was, and speaking from experience, I know about this, the problem was that if you did have an unexpected expense, suddenly you had to spend 700 quid on the car. Or you need a new boiler, or whatever it was, you didn't have any fat, you didn't have those, and that was what created the, the that created terrible stress and strain, the worry that if there was something, whereas if you're up, up, up the ladder of income, there was always the assumption that one of the things that came with that was the ability to be able to ride the unexpected problem, the rainy day. And we're now looking at, you're talking about, was it 32% of people in the, in a- abc ones that couldn't front up a, a grant like you say gary from the political point of view if i was the government and i was reading that that would that would worry me
0: i mean younger people you would more expect this way because they yes yes they have much less costs but they have much lower income and for all like i've been saying you know people should save people should have these things at a certain point if your income is too low saving is a relatively little use to you because you're just going to spend, you have to spend a certain amount to continue existing. Yeah. At which point the advice should be less spend and more, you need to go get a better job with a higher wage, even if the conditions are worse. But 16 to 34 year olds, 38% said that they they couldn't, uh, just straight out could not afford to cover uh, a thousand euro. That's one thing. In the 35 to 49 year old cohort, the cohort where people have costs because they've got mortgages, but also you're kind of expected to have your stuff together to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And 48% said they couldn't afford an unexpected expense of a thousand euro.
1: And that also, by the way, is an age cohort that will be voting. Well, that's the other thing. You're starting to
0: get in, into the ages where voting starts happening very, very regularly, like your mid-30s on up into the 40s. These are people who vote. And it's better in the fifty-five plus, it's only 30%. But saying that 30% of households in that range cannot afford a thousand euro is still a shit, you
1: know, stat. Yeah, it is.
0: And legitimately I, I have I'm very curious. I'm very curious if this is costs or if this is just that Irish people are really financially illiterate and don't realise what they should be doing. it's very easy to do a lot of this stuff if you start doing it and you just do it but it's also very easy not to do it and it's like many other things like caring for your health or exercise in the short run it's easier not to do it but in the long run the negatives pile up and you cannot turn back the clock and say oh I'll start this five years ago
1: yeah (laughs) unfortunately that is a great truth it would be so much easier to say listen what you know what we'll do we'll go back to when I was 25 and we'll, we'll start, we'll play tennis three times a week and maybe we won't quite eat quite so much. So, uh, and, But rather than hit 45 and think, oh my God, how did I get to where I am? No, the, the, in the absence of time travel technology, which by the way, Gary, I haven't heard any significant government investment being announced in time travel technology, which is a disappointment. Nor are there jetpacks. Do you think there's any chance that the budget may actually give us all a jetpack?
0: I mean, there are actually some interesting advances in jetpack technology. It's exoskeletons I'm really waiting for.
1: Exoskeletons. Mm -hmm. That will truly be the death of exercise. (laughs)
0: Uh, just just on this, Michael, and this yeah. is probably not something our listeners need to hear, because I expect, you know, purely on the basis of being listeners to us, that these are people who've got their heads screwed on right.
1: Unlike uh, myself, but anyway, go on.
0: Yeah. It's, this is really something people should act on if they can. There's lots of stuff you can do that you may not realize you can do. Even the mere act of creating a budget where you just take note of what you are buying. Much like calorie counting, if when you start calorie counting, you start noticing a lot of stuff that you didn't notice before. The amount of money that you can spend on things which seem inexpensive, but are bought regularly, yeah, is yeah. absolutely insane. I mean, I once worked out the amount of money I spent on bottles of Coke, Michael, and uh, actually over the my course of my lifetime, I probably could have bought a boat instead.
1: You don't want to buy a boat, Gary. Never buy a boat. But...
0: There's things you should do. The mere act of actually measuring what you're doing will probably cause you to change your behavior if you've never done something like that before, because it can quite frankly be quite shocking to see where your money is actually going when it's laid down straight in front of you. And it allows you to look at it and go, well, like, was that actually worth the amount of money I could spend on it? And similarly, if you can afford it, saving at the start of the month rather than the end will make a massive difference, I have found. Because if you wait till the end, stuff comes up, and you do stuff, Michael, and it gets spent, or some yes, amount no, of it gets that, spent. That's, that's or if the money isn't there because it's in the savings and you just ignore it, it's actually a lot easier to handle. Um, and again, I don't want to tell people how to live their lives, and I know lots of people find it difficult because of the, uh, the costs they have to meet versus their wages. But I think a lot of people just don't do it and you will not be able to get that time back. And you don't want to end up in a situation where you can't afford a thousand euro. Because at that point, your choices are what? Go into debt, get a loan, use a credit card. You are living in a precarious situation, regardless of how well you think you're living. And it's you shouldn't, a, because that I, is stress.
1: It, 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 it it's, a, it's a tough one, Gary. I mean, I, I would admit that, you know, with the changes in my own economic circumstances, I have been having to look at the possibility of maybe moving to the f- south of France, and becoming a gigolo, and uh, I'm not excited by the prospect, but it may have to be done, Gary.
0: A wonderful counter to my heartfelt, "You should fix your life" speech.
1: <laughs> anyway, the budget will be out next week, and we shall we shall know what wonderful things the government has done to us. Sorry, for us, uh, and we can talk a little bit more about that then. However, I think I think it's time to draw a veil over the the. The misery, which is economics for the time being. And have a good weekend.
0: All the best.